0: Hi there, I'm Haley.
1: And I'm Sophie. And we are your Perspectives podcast hosts. The Perspectives podcast is a graduate-run program exploring various public health topics in an effort to learn from experts in the field and the community from varied backgrounds and areas of inquiry. We
0: explore topics within and outside of standard public health discourse, but our conversations relate to subjects that impact all of us on various levels of well-being. We're glad you're here and we're excited to learn alongside you.
1: Hello, Perspectives Podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us today. Today I'm joined by Megan Zimmerman, and we're going to talk about elder care and dementia-friendly work. I'm very excited to have her on and I'll hand it over to you, Megan. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me today, Sophia. Um, So my name is Megan Zimmerman, and I work for the Northeast Iowa Area Agency on Aging. So I'm actually located in Iowa, and um, I lead a program called the Dementia-Friendly Iowa Initiative. And so uh, my focus is helping not only older adults age in their homes and in the community, but specifically educating the community to understand how to serve people living with dementia. So as far as educational background, I went to the University of Northern Iowa, majored in gerontology and social work, and now I'm pursuing my master's degree in gerontology from Iowa State University. So I'm um, definitely interested in all things gerontology, but then professionally, um, I'm focusing on dementia-friendly efforts.
1: That is so awesome. And it's also so needed as the population continues to age and more people are experiencing dementia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, it's wonderful to see a young person in this field. So what led you to the elder care field specifically?
0: Yeah, so actually growing up, I had a lot of older adults in my life that were pretty strong influences on me. So not only did I have great relationships with a lot of my grandparents, but also when I was in second grade, I started taking piano lessons from an 87-year-old. And she taught lessons, piano lessons to me from when she was 87 to in her mid to late 90s. And she really became much more than a, just a piano teacher to me, but she also became a friend. She was like my babysitter when I was, you know, in those younger years. And then I started helping her around the house over the years. I saw her move from her own home. She had a, a baby grand piano. Um, Then she moved to like an independent living building. She had to get rid of her grand piano. She had an upright. Then she moved to an assisted living and then uh, a nursing home. So kind of I saw her move through that continuum of care and kind of how that impacted her not only with piano lessons, but also in other aspects of life. And we really just continued a friendship till she passed away at 99 years old. So her name was Joyce. And I really attribute a lot of my interest in gerontology and elder care and older adults to my relationship with her because I realized you know maybe it wasn't a typical thing that an elementary student middle school student wanted to hang out with an older person Um, and I really enjoyed it and so that's kind of what started getting me interested and so by high school I knew I wanted to major in gerontology and make that a career.
1: That's a really beautiful story. And there's also been so much research just about how older adults and younger people are so good for each other and how intergenerational relationships can actually improve health. Mm -hmm. And so it's really beautiful to see that in action in your life and then also leading into your career later on.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've, I've done some research too about that and um, about the kind of impact on ageism in children based on like the contact and their relationships they have with older adults and definitely has a big impact on on kids as well as the social benefits for older adults. So it is very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So what led to your work being more specific to people with dementia?
0: When I was going to the University of Northern Iowa, um, my professor, as well as academic advisor, was really interested in dementia and specifically dementia education, dementia, edu- but dementia awareness in the community. And so as I kind of saw her as a mentor, she started getting me involved in um, dementia related activities. So one particular example, she would go every month and do an activity for people in a in an adult day center, and most of them had dementia. And it was just the most joyful day of the month. It was so fun to get to go and interact with those people living with dementia and, and also learn from her, her strategies. And just how she would communicate with them and interact with them. So that was kind of the beginnings of of my interest in that, as well as I was a CNA. And so I would be serving people with dementia and that kind of piqued my interest. And then finally, my junior year of college, I helped launch the first dementia-friendly community in Iowa. So Dementia-Friendly Waterloo was the first official dementia-friendly community in Iowa. Um, there are dementia-friendly communities across the nation, but this just happened to be the first one in Iowa um, within the Dementia-Friendly America Network. So it it was really exciting, along with my professor at the time and then a, a team of community members to start those dementia-friendly efforts locally. And so that's what really got me involved. And then from there, I've just stuck with it, and it's become a statewide initiative in Iowa. And so, um, yeah, it's really just grown from my experience in
1: college. That is so cool. What an amazing opportunity and launching pad for the whole state of Iowa. And I'm sure also an inspiration for other areas of the country.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think we've been inspired too. some of the other states are are far ahead of us. Minnesota actually being one of those states that are that have many, many dementia-friendly communities and efforts. So they are kind of an inspiration to us in Iowa. But yeah, it's been a a fun journey. And I I should have mentioned too, one of the best parts is working alongside people living with dementia because we don't want to make dementia-friendly efforts and changes without their input. So that's been really the, the coolest part of my job. And just working with people with dementia is working with them directly to make those changes because they are the experts on dementia. So that really has, I guess, tied the knot for me of of loving this work, is working directly with them.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So taking a little bit of a detour, perhaps, what exactly does dementia-friendly mean?
0: Yeah, so being dementia-friendly is... Being informed about dementia and its building safe and respectful environments for people living with dementia, with the goal of making sure they can thrive in the community. So the majority of people living with dementia actually live in the community. It's a big misconception out there that most of them just live in nursing homes. When in reality, majority are living in their own homes and going everywhere that people with dementia without dementia are going. So people with dementia go to the grocery store, to the gym, to the hair salon, to their church or other faith-based community. And so we really have to start reframing how we kind of think of a person living with dementia. And, and we really need to start building those places up to be able to serve people with dementia well. So being dementia-friendly is that awareness piece, but then also making changes to make the service or program accessible to people living with dementia.
1: What are steps that organizations could take to make their community more accessible? Yeah, so for example,
0: I'm just going to give the example of a hair salon, because I think every sector and every part of the community has some really specific things they can do. So for, for example, a hair salon could think about turning the music down or turning the phones down when they have a client with dementia visiting, because with dementia, um, the brain with dementia starts to lose the ability to filter sounds. And so any sound coming in is just as important as the next. And so it can be very hard for a person with dementia if there's too many sounds, too much commotion, too many people. And so. Um, Yeah, talking to the hair salon about turning down that music, turning down the phones or turning off the ring on the phones. Um, Can Is it possible to schedule that person at a quieter time of day? Can they um, make sure to put a note in the file so they can make a few extra reminder calls of their appointment? Um, Oftentimes, I think a lot of hair dresser hair professionals talk a lot during the experience, which is great for some people. Um, but for people with dementia, maybe they get tired of the conversation after five minutes. And so we we train those professionals to be okay with not um, carrying on a, a full 30 minute or one hour conversation. Um, let's see. Those are some of the main Uh, points we make, but there are so many others um, of ways different businesses can be dementia friendly. So that's just a hair salon, but we we talk to all sorts of different places.
1: That's great advice. What about, for example, someone living in their home and maybe their, their spouse is not there or their children are worried about them living independently? How can someone live alone and increase their level of safety? Um, if they have appliances in their home, et cetera?
0: Yeah, so that can be a challenge, definitely, but it's it's possible. And obviously it's gonna depend on the individual, but here in Iowa, and and there are these resources in any state is the Area Agencies on Aging and those exist to help people um, live in their home for as long as possible or help them navigate those choices. So definitely reaching out to those local supports like the Area Agency on Aging in addition, um, there are always, you know, different home modifications available. So making sure um, things are on the first level, avoiding stairs when possible, as far as like appliances and Home cleaning supplies and those sort of risks with people with dementia, that is going to be individual based on where they're at in their progression of the disease. But we work with a lot of families and make suggestions such as um, locking up the cabinets with the chemicals and medications, um, locking up firearms, firearms. If it's a problem over time and it's reoccurring that the person with dementia is leaving the the stove or burner on, we suggest unplugging that, um, of course, and making sure they have access to, to meals and proper nutrition. But uh, yeah, there are so many things in the home environment that can be modified. It's just a matter of learning about it and then taking action.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think a lot of families do worry about that just making sure that their loved one is safe, secure, etc. But there are so many modifications that can be done, whether someone is living completely independently or even, for example, in an apartment like an assisted living complex or independent living. Definitely. There's lots of options.
0: Yes, definitely. And then, of course, there's always um, in-home care or You know, extra support that can be hired as well to make it even safer if
1: that's a need that they have. For sure. How, in your opinion, has elder care changed over time?
0: I would say we are seeing a lot of changes over time with care for older adults because I think, in a good way, our culture is understanding that we need to meet individual needs and Yeah, I need to individualize that care to meet that person um, where they're at in their preferences. It's not just. You know, thankfully we have more options today than several years ago. It's not like the only option anymore is just for a person to, to go to one assisted living or one nursing home in their town. Um, oftentimes there are more options, um, not only to go to, a, to a different living environment, but also to make their home safer and more accessible. And so I think we're seeing more of those individualized options. We are, I think, seeing more and more people who do want to stay in their own homes. And um yeah, it's a it's a good thing that there are options for that and and innovations. Even technology, you know, we have a lot of technology advances that make it more possible for people who want to stay in their homes to stay socially connected, to, you know, there's even things that can be installed in the home to make it safer. So yeah, so I think we're seeing a lot more options in individualized care.
1: Definitely. Yeah. I think maybe COVID has had an influence on that as well. People wanting to stay more connected to their communities, to their families, that in a more um, facility-centric setting, it might be more difficult to do that, just with you know screening and making sure people are, are safe because it is such a, a community living situation where there's lots of people that are vulnerable altogether. Mhm.
0: Yeah, I definitely think COVID had an impact on that and and I never want to like minimize or diminish like the place for for facilities because there will always be a place for that because sometimes based on the family situation that that is the best option um to care for their loved one or care for, them, for themselves as well. So there will always be a place for that, but I yeah, I do think we're seeing that shift for more people hoping to stay in their own homes especially as the baby boomers are reaching that age where they're needing more care as well
1: definitely yeah there's there's a need for both and that's that's one thing with the continuum of care there's yeah there's options um, ranging from staying in one's home to progressive care up to for example a skilled nursing facility
0: absolutely
1: yeah so where do you see the future of elder care going?
0: So in our population, we're seeing more and more people age. We're seeing a larger population of older adults. And so we're really going to need to, as a society, meet those needs. We're we're really needing more people to go into uh, not only direct care, but also just gerontology in general, because we need to meet the needs of older adults. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation. And as I mentioned earlier um, to meet those individualized needs of older adults, we're going to need more people to work in this field. And so it's exciting, but there's a lot of work to do and a lot of people that need to do it.
1: I think it's interesting as well. For example, working in more of a nursing home or assisted living context, it's also not just administrators or nurses that are needed. It's people who do health information technology. It's people who do maintenance and housekeeping or environmental care. It's, it's people who have this dual understanding of both the aging process and what older adults need, while also having more specialized knowledge in a certain component of how to keep people safe and well in their environment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It is kind of that crossover between different yeah, different specializations. So, for example, I mean, real estate and interior design is huge. I mean, we need people in that field who can design settings that are not only dementia friendly, but just age friendly
1: in general.
0: So, yeah, absolutely.
1: What do you think younger people should know about aging to best prepare for their future or the future of their loved ones? Yes.
0: First of all, when you asked that question, or when I was thinking about it, it really, I mean, ageism came to my mind. We we have so much ageism in our communities, and it's just so pervasive. And the interesting thing about ageism is that we all are aging, and that someday, hopefully, many of us will be older adults. And so ageism is so interesting and sad to me because we're being ageist against our future selves. So, with that said, I think I would encourage younger people to interact as much as possible with older adults, uh, whether that's their family members who are older, whether it's volunteering in their community because I think there's a lot to learn just from interacting with and building relationships with older adults because we really need to yeah, we need to be less ageist as a as a culture. So I think that's the first recommendation I would have. And then as far as what they should know to prepare for the future of maybe their family members, I think there is a whole lot to learn. I'm actually in my family right now. One of my, yeah, one of my older family members is starting to need more care and it's as a gerontologist, it's hard for me to like be in that personal Experience where I'm seeing you know a lot of confusion and just lack of understanding of what to do in my family, and so I think the more and more we can learn what's out there to prepare and and just yeah try to educate ourselves ahead of time and prepare for the future is is really helpful. There's a lot to learn
1: that's so good. I think there's also this delicate balance of of recognizing we're all aging and we're all, you know, growing and really, you know, fighting against that sort of ageist mentality while also knowing that the later years of life can be challenging in their own unique ways, just as different stages of life have their own unique set of maybe difficulties or or things that are unique to that time period of life. Mm -hmm. And so being both aware of just the the common humanity of all stages of life while also preparing for what that next stage of life might bring.
0: Mm-hmm. there's definitely mm-hmm. it's a balance it's a difficult tension for sure
1: mm-hmm. and and to really recognize too like there's there's so much beauty that comes with with older age, so much wisdom, so much um, to share with especially younger people. So that kind of comes into play too, like your relationship with your piano teacher, for example, where you learn from her, and I'm sure that she also just appreciated your your company and like your um your friendship. Mhm, definitely,
0: yeah, I think we're stronger together, and yeah, we shouldn't just have friends our own age. I think no matter what your age is, we need to lean on each other and lean on the strengths of each other so yeah it's definitely huge to have
1: that interaction definitely so in your opinion how can quality of life be improved for older adults
0: i think one way to improve quality of life for older adults is to continue to help them be involved in the community everyone needs a purpose everyone likes to feel purposeful and feel like what they're doing matters and so I really truly believe no matter anyone's age or abilities, they matter in our communities. And so I think if we can continue to foster ways for any age to be involved and in thriving in the community, that would, that definitely improves quality of life. So whether that person's at home and they. You know, like my piano teacher, are teaching younger generations or whether they are in a skilled nursing facility and there are activities or meaningful work that can be brought in, I think that purpose is key to quality of life.
1: Yeah, I actually attended a lecture this morning and the lecturer said something that was just, it really struck me. He was saying that if you're not building community or supporting community, if you're doing some kind of healthcare or public health work, you're doing sort of almost like a malpractice in public health or mm. healthcare because it's such a huge determinant of health and well being if people are involved and supported in community.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And it brings in like there are so many dimensions of well being and dimensions of wellness that. You know, health is not just physical health, and I'm sure you talk about a lot about this in public health, but it's not just the physical health. It's the social, emotional, spiritual, and so improving quality of life for older adults has to include all of those dimensions, or it's not well-being. It's not true health. So yeah, that's very important.
1: Definitely. Yeah, and maybe another change in the elder care field in general is for a long time, Especially in skilled nursing facilities, it was a very very much so a medical model of you know it was focused on on treating the illness of people and providing basic care needs, but there's dimensions of well-being that were left out, and that's a shift that is you know a lot of people at, and all the levels of the continuum of care for older adults and also for people with different um, ability limitations that people are really trying to, to get into this more of model of holistic and person-centered care.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that individualized, person-centered care, kind of wraparound care and not just focused on health. Definitely, I think we're seeing that shift, and I think we're going to see that more and more in the future as well. This is such a kind of a silly, specific thing, but even just food – I I mean, we've seen that change a little bit, I think, over the last several years. But, you know, as we have more diversity and, and more people going into the continuum of care that need specific diets, people who their religion, you know, makes them have a specific diet or people that are lactose intolerant I mean we're seeing more and more of that and we're seeing not only just you know health like physical limitations but also just preferences so even that aspect of care I hope to see more changes and innovation over time
1: yeah that's so interesting because yeah as I was thinking about the different specializations that people could go into elder care in a specific way Mm -hmm. dining is a huge one it's a huge yeah Making yes. sure that people have good, nutritious, diverse food options. It's mm-hmm. so important.
0: Yeah. I actually was learning in one of my classes the other day like that so many older adults are at risk for, for malnutrition. But then especially when they're living in a long-term care facility, they're at an even greater risk. So definitely we need more geriatric dietitians and people specializing in that. Um, along with everything else, but
1: yeah, for sure. So how can students and others get involved in supporting older adults? As I mentioned
0: earlier, just building relationships with people that aren't their age, building relationships with older adults in whatever capacity they are able to. So whether it's in their own families or out in the community or within their faith-based community, there are many opportunities and, and we're stronger together. So I think finding ways to build those relationships are just one huge way to support older adults. And then in addition, just learning more. Um, I know that's feels so cliche, but it is so important. It's just the education, you know, my area of expertise is dementia. And so I know the power of when someone is, aware and understanding of dementia, just how much better that can be for someone living with it when they have an interaction. And so, yeah, I I guess I would say that building relationships with older adults and then educating yourself about it is huge. It can make a big impact in supporting older adults.
1: Well, thank you so much, Megan. It was such a joy to hear your thoughts and to learn more about what you do.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I don't think so. Yeah, I think we covered most of it. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Absolutely.
0: If you would like to learn more about this topic, we've attached resources for you in the description of this episode.
1: Thank you again for joining us today. We hope we'll see you next time.